Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week, in the wake of the anniversary of the declaration of a pandemic by the WHO, I talked to Dr Eugene Richardson, Assistant Professor of Global Health at Harvard and author of Epidemic Illusions on the Coloniality of Global Public Health. Eugene previously worked in Sierra Leone and the DRC, supporting the response to the Ebola outbreak. We discuss the ways in which an unequal, unsustainable capitalist world system reproduces massive economic, political and health inequalities and what we can do about it. Thanks so much to all our amazing patrons who make this show possible. If you want access to the full hour-long episode of this show, as well as full-length interviews with previous guests like Naomi Klein and Dr. Cornell West, support us at patreon.com slash aworldtowinpod. There's a link in the description. If you want to support the show in another way, please do give us a rating on iTunes to keep us up in the charts and share your favourite episodes on social media, tagging at aworldtowinpod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Another big thank you to Reverend and the Makers who've let us use their track Heavyweight Champion of the World as our intro and outro music. Now, here is Eugene Richardson on why the world was so unprepared for COVID-19. Hello, Eugene Richardson, and thank you so much for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for inviting me. So we're going to talk a little bit, I mean, we're going to talk about a lot today because, you know, you have a kind of fascinating backstory as well as having this new book Epidemic Illusions out that um, that we're going to talk about as well. But can you tell us a bit about your history and why you decided to write this book at this particular time? You know, I've been, I guess, interested in what we call global health, even from before I went to medical school. I had actually studied Buddhism in China and India and as part of a master's degree. And I guess around that you know, during that time, developed more of a relational view of the world and as opposed to an individualist view. And then I'm a, I came across uh, people like Paul Farmer, who is actually currently my boss, but he's written uh, way back when on essentially how structural forces, how social forces become embodied as pathology. So not how you know, biology, you know, cancer comes this way or viruses get into the body, but how actually social forces get into the body and make people sick. And, and that really kind of changed my, my view on, you know, what health phenomena were um, that, that, Mm. you know, have it determined by historically, you know, what's in your body. And so I started, you know, reading more on that and working more abroad. I did you know, Doctors Without Borders mission in the Sudan and then went to med school and then did some more um, HIV TB work in South Africa, some work with the Rohingya in Bangladesh, and then two big stints working on Ebola, one in Sierra Leone and the other in Democratic Republic of Congo. And I'd say through all those experiences, uh, you know, more and more I realized that aid is this double-edged sword, you know, essentially, and, and Kwame Nkrumah taught us this back in the 1960s. So it's mm. not, it wasn't a, a novel uh, insight, but, you know, he basically said that aid is a uh, revolving door for um, a little bit comes in with the left hand and kind of disguises what the global North is extracting, the huge amounts that they're extracting with the right. Mm. I started noticing that, um, you know, up close and, and, and in the stats, I think one of them, the 
It's really telling was that 2017 report called Illicit Financial Flows and basically showed that, uh, you know, $160 billion went into the continent of Africa in the form of aid, loans, and remittances mm. in that year. And then $200 billion came out just in illicit financial flows. So just in illegal, you know, yeah. tax, tax theft or uh, tax evasion, trade misinvoicing. And so the whole idea, you know, after you see something like that, and the whole idea of development is a farce. I mean, the continent is a net creditor to the global north of $40 billion. So I started to see more and more that what we thought of as just colonial extraction actually continues today under, you know, what Nkrumah called neocoloniality or what some of the South American scholars call coloniality. Mm. And then with the book, I actually, you know, started seeing how it wasn't just economic might um, that where this coloniality existed, but it existed in what we call science. You know, the ways we study and parse health phenomena in the global South, I saw were essentially doing work uh, for elite interests. And, and the idea of the book was to critique this and to explore it and to kind of turn it on its head and to show how what we think of as objectively neutral epidemiology, for instance, actually does uh, neoliberal work. The book is written in like a really interesting uh, format, something that I've never really come across before, but which is also quite affecting. What made you decide to write it in, in such an unusual way to try and get these points across? Yeah, uh, thanks. I mean, I did, I did take this approach where there's, you know, really not chapters, uh, so to speak, but uh, I call them, you know, experimental heuristics. And I think one of the, the first thing that led me down that path was this idea that it's hard to critique modernity using its terms of reference. And the terms of reference of modernity are, you know, access to objective truth and uh, rational argument and logic, this, that, and the other. And I think those are tools of, just tools of rhetoric that use to cover up the ideological work that such science is doing. So one, I tried to, you know, uh, make arguments, um, but not using the terms of reference of, of usual uh, modern discourse. And the other reason was that, you know, I see, I guess I should make the distinction here between, you know, natural science um, and the human sciences. I really think mm. completely different uh, ways of, of getting knowledge about the world. So, you know, for instance, three quarks equal a proton. I don't think that's going to change regardless of your ideology or mass mm. prevent transmission or tobacco causes cancer. These I don't think change based on your ideological presuppositions. But anything that has to do with social phenomenon, human behavior, I think that is um, uh, will, the way you curate facts, the way you interpret those phenomena will always be flavored by your ideological presuppositions. And so the, um, so that's another way of saying that, um, you know, the human sciences are, are different forms of rhetoric. Um, and so I, I took that um, and ran with it um, and used many different forms of rhetoric to try to make the point that there are pluriversal approaches to interpreting social phenomenon. And, and some interpretations lend themselves towards justice some lend them towards uh, continuing status quo relations of inequality. And I, I you know, I, I use a, several examples to show how I think um, predominant examples in, in public health science actually just continue status quo relations of inequality instead of challenging them. 
Could you maybe give us some examples of how these kind of forms of knowledge and the social sciences have been developed in a way that kind of stems from and reinforces um, relations of kind of colonialism and imperialism? Because a lot of the kind of foundations of areas of social science that we kind of accept today come from various different forms of kind of experimentation that took place in the context of colonialism and you know that has obviously continued for for some time today um so i'm I'm kind of interested in uh, particularly in the area of medicine examples of where you know we've had bodies being experimented on by colonial powers in pursuit of some sort of kind of uh scientific knowledge or truth about the way that these societies work Right. I mean, the the examples are ripe, uh, you know, for, of um, colonial medicine, even uh, continuing past independence movements, where you know people in the global south were used as essentially guinea pigs for studies. So I think even Harvard was involved in in Liberia in the early 1900s in just injecting people with malaria to see how they did mm. what disease course was like. You know, there's the example from Tuskegee in the U.S. where there was a cure. Uh, well, the study started and then a cure was developed for syphilis. But um, uh, U.S. investigators basically allowed black men in Alabama to continue with their syphilis without treating them just so they could learn about the natural history of it. Oh. And it doesn't even stop there. I cite in the book uh, an example of a study in um in the 90s in Uganda, run by some people from Hopkins, which basically they located serodiscordant couples, meaning somebody was positive with HIV and somebody wasn't. And they knew, and, and they just followed the person who didn't have HIV and did not tell them that their partner had HIV, nor did they give them any of the medicines which were then available, um, at least globally, uh, to treat their HIV. They said, because they weren't available in Uganda yet, even though we're U.S. investigators, we're not going to give you the treatment and we're not going to tell you your partner's positive. And they basically watched them get infected and then figured out, based on their partner's viral load, how viral load determines infectivity. Um, and this is you know, a study in the 90s, completely unethical. And so I think it's easy to find examples of medical studies where the colonial other is used as as someone to experiment on. I actually focus more on not the experimenting on people, but how studies uh, symbolically how they how they do ideological work. And so, one of the examples might be the IHME, so the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation um, out in Washington, which has received over six hundred million dollars of funding. From Bill Gates, and there's a good article in The Nation by uh, Tim Schwab about, you know, are these millions, are these hundreds of millions distorting public health data? I'll just use the example of their COVID models, their COVID forecasts from last spring, which one were very wrong. Uh, Their forecasts were uh, 70% of the time not even within their own confidence intervals. Two, they were used ideologically, so they they showed or they predicted. a decrease, decreases in the outbreak that Trump jumped on to say, look, Trump administration is doing a great job. So their wrong forecasts were used ideologically. But at the heart of it, I also think they do uh, racist work because they basically 
forecast what will happen in, in, say, the U.S. if people social distance, if they wear masks, they close down businesses. And that will reduce infections for sure, but it actually doesn't decrease disparities in infections. So we may move from 10 million to 3 million infections, but in both cases, you know, three times the number of black people are still dying because of, uh, you know, structural determinants. And so we use Ibram Kendi's definition of racism or racist policy or analyses are ones that either contribute to inequalities or continue them. Then these are actually racist analyses because they essentially perpetuate disparities. They do nothing to intervene into risk structure. And, and so we uh, have recently published what, we've, what we're calling anti-racist models, which looked at uh, what the coronavirus outbreak in the U.S. would look like if reparations had been paid to descendants of people enslaved in the U.S. maybe five, 10 years ago. And we found that across the board, the outbreak could have been uh, reduced by 30 to 60% just by intervening in this highest risk group. And that has received loads of hate mail. Um, uh, we have co-authors on that. Um, just to highlight the, the cultural wars that, that are beyond what goes into forecasting and, and predicting. But I think the main point is that most models, whether they're from Imperial in the UK or whether they're from IHME in the US, they do very little to open the social imaginary into radical intervention, in uh, radical interventions into uh, wealth redistribution, and therefore they do neoliberal work because they often are taken up as the dominant narrative, as the dominant way to think about how we can intervene, and they really constrain the social imaginary. I completely get this because you can totally see it with economic modeling as well. It kind yeah. of is. It's almost like the way in which these models reinforce this idea of capitalist realism. Like it's it's not only easier to imagine the world and the end of capitalism, it is kind of easier to imagine policy changes within these existing frameworks that are, you know, modeled in these different ways by these different institutions than it is to change the kind of underlying parameters that are going into the models because they're reproduced so uncritically. You can think of like every time a, a, an economist or a business person goes on the TV and says, well, if we increase taxes on the rich, then GDP will go down by X percent. And of course, you know, there's nothing. We're not being told anything that, that is underlying any of that stuff. And you really saw it re being reproduced over the course of the COVID-19 pandemic with people going on the TV, often from the right, saying, well, if we don't open up the economy soon, GDP will fall by X amount or unemployment will go up by Y amount without ever saying what they were, you know, forecasting in terms of deaths or, you know, long-term illness or any of these kind of other underlying factors. So um, yeah, it's really interesting to hear that point about how this problem of modeling is, you know, just as significant an issue when we're talking about public health as it is in, in economics. Yeah, no, you've you've hit the nail right on the head. I mean, this is exactly this is exactly looking at public health science in the way you would uh, critique economics, as you've said. Like how how does it sort of reproduce this capitalist realism? And I, I think there there have been good uh, forays into the, how the human science economics does this. There haven't been as many into public health science. Mm. That's why I chose this because it seems more objectively neutral. Oh, we're just describing, you know, transmission, this, that, and the other. But really, when you take the deep dive and you see what assumptions are made for the models, 
even when they do things like regressions, what variables are chosen, it's pretty easy to show the ideological work that they do. And, you know, I conclude in the book essentially that this is the same for all human sciences, right? So uh, mm. econ, sociology, epidemiology, public health, anthro, history, any analysis of what are deemed the, the human sciences can be shown to demonstrate the uh, ideological work they do. And that's why Foucault said, right, you know, as human scientists, he didn't quite say it like that, but he, uh, mm. this is a paraphrase that, you know, we should be looking to find the, uh, the capital T truth to, to, uh, to present to our readers, but rather we have to look at the forms of power of which we are an instrument and struggle against us. Mm. It is really interesting to hear you talk about kind of, um, epidemiology and public health and various areas of kind of uh, medicine as more part of of the human sciences than of the kind of physical sciences because I think a lot of people you know perhaps myself included would have maybe put that like medicine in that same category as you know you were talking about kind of atomic physics or whatever it's just about facts of the way that the human body works but actually this is a really important point to bring forward that a lot of what we put in the category of kind of inevitable physical illnesses have social factors, social causes. I had on my show a couple of weeks ago, Ellen Clifford from Disabled People Against the Cuts, who is really big on this idea of the social model of disability, mm. how um, you know socioeconomic conditions feed into disability and disability reinforces kind of various different forms of socioeconomic conditions. How do you think we can kind of undercut this almost like kind of objectivist approach that we have to discussions around medicine and health and actually bring out the social element much more clearly, which, you know, as you said, with the kind of hate that was the response to that study, people are very resistant to. Yeah, and, and this is where it does get difficult because, uh, you know, I don't want to uh, throw out the baby with the bathwater. Of course, mm. we have, you know, we've medicine and has given us, you know, helped extend life and, and cure diseases. And, and so a lot of the stuff that falls fully into the physiological realm, you know, this drug works on this, you know, these carcinogens cause this, mm. uh, I don't really apply this critique to. So I think you have to start with trying to parse, you know, wh what is just sort of physiologic and then what comes into the, the human realm, what involves behavior, what involves social constructs, what, um, and thereby what involves social determinants. But it's easy to, to see where these areas can overlap. So for example, where I used to work in South Africa, one of the big movements there in the uh, HIV prevention world was to get people on PrEP, which is pre-exposure prophylaxis. And in a sense, you find people that are at high risk and by WHO uh, guidelines, that would be all black women in South Africa. And you give them two HIV pills instead of the three HIV pills, if you actually had been infected, to take daily. And if you, if you have those on board, then you get into a risky situation, you won't get infected. And at the time when I was working there, I believe that the, that medicine cost $50 a month to, to prescribe. And in the back of my head, I, I thought, you know, well, and, and in talking to the women, you know, they, they realized that they know their risk and, and they would say things like, you know, if it wasn't for the blessers, I wouldn't, you know, if I had a job, I wouldn't even have to worry about these blessers. Meaning if I had work, I wouldn't have to worry about sugar daddies to, 
pay this, uh, that, and the other. Mm. Um, and so we would talk about things like, well, why not just give women $50 instead of giving them the chemical solution, because that would allow them to navigate their structural risk for HIV. And you'd have push people push back and say, no, you know, we have this chemical solution and let's go with it. And so, yes, there is a chemical solution. And actually it does work well for people with agency and people, especially in the global North that engage in risky behavior, but are able to take it daily with no problems. There, where there's huge stigma attached to you know people that are thought to have HIV. So if anyone sees you with pills, you're going to be stigmatized or you have mm. to hide them in your house. It's actually not a viable solution. And so we run into points where, yes, we do have the science to do it, but sometimes the scientific solution isn't the one that solves the structural determinants. And so mm. that is where we need people to, to interpret and to get involved in dialogue with the people that are at risk to figure out, is it the chemical solution? Is it the structural? Is it, you know, getting more you know jobs out there, you know, which is easier said than done. But I think the problem with uh, de- uh, developing the medical solutions is that they, they then become the, the magic bullet for all types of structural determinants. When oftentimes, when they've actually done the big trials, they didn't even work at all because the women were taking them. Mm. <laughs> you know, they said they were taking them. And then when they drew levels, they found that they weren't taking them at all. So, mm. um, so yeah, there's the advances in, in medicine have been, you know, life-saving in all sorts of realms, but there are often, uh, you know, when there's not agency to use them or where there are environments that conspire against their use, people have to look to actual, um, you know, more radical intervention. As you just mentioned there, and um, you kind of alluded to before, you've worked in a lot of different parts of the world on lots of different diseases and uh, different contexts. What do you think we could have learned about how to respond to COVID-19 from previous outbreaks of, for example, Ebola or even HIV? Sure. I mean, I don't think we even have to go back as as far as those. Um, We can just look at early COVID with, uh, you know, China and South Korea Mm. and Japan. While there were some missteps, they did a much better job of containing than than Europe and and North America. And I think part of that is because of our reliance on on these models to sort of uh, let's look at them and and see if this type of masking works or this type of, uh, you know, social distancing works. And that's part of the problem. I mean, I would say that early on, models are completely useless in that there's so much uncertainty about uh, what could potentially happen that your best bet is to take the most paranoid approach, which is what they did out in Asia, and they were able to contain quickly. Italy, UK, US did not, and they had and continue to have awful outbreaks. So, you know, just learning from people in the current outbreak would um, uh, would have been enough. But looking at other phenomena of this outbreak, uh, notably vaccine distribution and what has become essentially vaccine apartheid across the globe, meaning that it's not that we're just buying up vaccines because we have the means to. Uh, You know, the U.S. has bought, I think, already five vaccines per capita. Canada has bought nine vaccines per capita. So this has gone beyond hoarding to a form of uh, vaccine apartheid. And Ebola you know, the colleagues I work with in Africa, they actually had done great work on testing the Ebola vaccine. And they and they worked together with partners to get a, a huge stockpile such that over 
you know, this year and moving forward, um, there are plans for a huge stockpile of Ebola vaccines to be used uh, whenever there are emergencies on the uh, African continent. Now, they thought that this sort of vaccine preparedness and uh, sharing and diplomacy would carry over to COVID. And of course, that was not the case. The first, the first sign that people in the global north were potentially affected by it um, led to a scenario where the hoarding and um, vaccine apartheid have taken place. And so, you know, we could have learned from our efforts to, to, uh, to develop international relations and, and vaccine equity uh, like we tried with Ebola. And it was shown to just be a farce. The only reason there was equity with Ebola was because it wasn't affecting the global north. And now we say, see how things really play out. And they play out like every other thing, you know, and that's why this book is called On the Coloniality of Global Public Health, because everything from continued economic extraction to knowledge production that's imposed on the global south to vaccine access all follows a logic of coloniality or neocolonialism, whatever you want to call it, um, that has transcended independence of, of former colonies. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you think the response to the pandemic is reproducing many of these pre-existing health inequalities that uh, we've been discussing so far? Sure. I mean, I think the, the stark ex- example is in the vaccine distribution. So when you have countries in the global north hoarding to uh, the amount of having access to five to 10 vaccines per capita when you only need one or two, you know, this really shows how uh, economic might uh, continues to affect uh, the health of people. And and it's self-defeating in a lot of ways because one, if countries in the global South have to continue to lock down, you know, that, that affects the global economy, but that also means variants can be produced there that would come back um, and maybe escape the the current vaccines we have. So it's counterproductive uh, on a, on a lot of levels. And it's not just morally disgusting. It's counterproductive economically and uh, epidemiologically. I had uh, an example of of, uh, economic kind of coloniality at work when I went to work. Uh, I was seconded to the Africa CDC um, last August. And one of the first things they asked me was to help with uh, procuring personal protective equipment and and testing uh, supplies and whatnot. Um, And it wasn't that they didn't have the money, but they were uh, being outbid by uh, Global North countries and outmaneuvered uh, in in getting these supplies. So anywhere I look, whether it's in producing studies about why an outbreak looks the way it does or producing forecasts about where we can go or about getting supplies uh, for the outbreak or about vaccine distribution, you can see colonial logics at work. And that, and it basically boils down to um, othering those, seeing them essentially as less human so that uh, no moral values uh, apply, essentially. So how how then could we have managed the vaccine rollout differently? What would that have looked like? And how would it have to be related to things like, so, I mean, obviously we're in a situation where we've seen the kind of biggest outflow of capital from the global South ever, and that's catalyzing this quite severe debt crisis as well. So this is obviously something that, you know, would have to be dealt with alongside any change to the 
the global vaccine rollout, but what are the kind of specific things that we could have done differently to, yeah, kind of, you know, avoid the situation that we're in now, in which you're quite right to suggest that not only are we depriving some of the poorest people in the world of access to this vaccine, we're also shooting ourselves in the foot because the global recovery is going to be much weaker if it takes a long time for everyone else to get immunity. So there was this program, COVAX, developed early on, and that the idea was to get vaccines to the global south in a, in a more equitable fashion. But even that, you could critique it as something that uh, may have been designed to prevent challenges to intellectual property, because essentially it just said people would fund the mechanism and then you know, it would purchase vaccines to to distribute. But if there's not enough vaccines from the beginning to distribute or co- countries like Canada and the U.S. are hoarding, then there's not much to be distributed to the global south. So what we really needed was a lot more vaccine production up front. And that was prevented by the intellectual property regimes. You know, uh, South Africa and India since uh, since last fall have been, have had a, um, essentially brought it up to the WTO to, to, for TRIPS waivers, you know, to, you know, take away the intellectual property so that manufacturing of vaccines could take, uh, take place elsewhere. And the argument against it was, well, these are so complicated that, you know, you wouldn't be able to produce these vaccines anywhere. And that, and that's been debunked recently. And so, you, you know, we're really seeing IP. And, and again, just a few days ago, the WTO ruled against uh, the TRIPS waiver, uh, IP getting in the way of, of saving lives around the world. We'd rather focus on our pharmaceuticals getting richer than millions of deaths around the world. And so, I mean, th- these TRIPS waivers were in place for this exact thing, where there was an emergency, there's not enough capacity to, to get the life-saving materials out to people. And so, uh, you remove the IP so that places around the world could develop the medicines or drugs or manufacture them. Um, doing it now would also mean that in the future, when we have future pandemics, that something would be in place for you know mass vaccination production. But instead, we keep sticking to the the protection of intellectual property. And and the sad thing about that is that it's not even really the property of some of these companies. Like they've built on public research. They've done, they've conducted the research on people in the global South, yet they're able to claim total protection when it comes to, uh, you know, sharing of any of the ideas related to it. So I think, you know, interventions in much stronger interventions into the IP regimes uh, needed to take place for, for us to have more supply. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, dealing with this any differently would really require quite a kind of fundamental restructuring, I suppose, of not just like international law and the foundations of uh, of um, the public health regime that we have at the moment, but actually a lot of kind of bilateral and international treaties, which form the foundations of intellectual property law internationally, as well as then on top of that, some level of resource and technology transfers to support these states in the global south to you know be able to kind of have the resources that they'd need to mitigate these issues now and also um deal with any any kind of future crises that's quite a kind of profound restructuring of the global economy that's required just to meet these basic needs that states have in the middle of this this pandemic um, this is quite an unfair question to probably to ask you as a kind of um, as a social scientist. Yeah. But how do you think you know 
socialists and progressives can try and organize to demand these policies in the context of quite a substantial uptick in, in nationalism, basically. Yeah. I think one way is supporting these reparation movements. I, I've come in, uh, in working with colleagues on various uh, reparations claims around the world. I've come to realize that or come to appreciate that, you know, a lot of these uh, structural f- transformations won't take place until legacies have been repaired. You know, once countries, you know, if, if uh, India were to get 45 trillion back, which would take, you know, hundreds of years for UK to pay or DRC, for instance, were to get the several trillion that has been. Yeah. Uh, from UK and uh, Belgium, they'd actually be in a place to to negotiate more these unfair trade regulations, bilateral agreements. Um, so, uh, a first step, I think, in getting that structure to change is doing the repair first, so that there's actually an environment where groups in the and countries in the global south are actually empowered to take on this type of negotiating. And so, I think supporting, you know, not just um, you know, movements for uh, equality, like not just in the U.S. supporting supporting someone like Bernie Sanders. I mean, what my colleagues would say is that, yeah, even if we get to Bernie, that's not going to get us to a post-racial society because that legacy hasn't been repaired. You know, we essentially need reparations paid, then Bernie, and then, you know, move on more to the left. Um, another thing that has been kind of commented upon by a bunch of different people, um, you know, geographers, economists, epidemiologists, is that there is this apparent relationship between the increase in the number of kind of novel viruses that are spreading around the world at the moment and the changing nature of the relationship between humans and the natural environment, particularly thinking about kind of unsustainable agricultural practices. Do you think that we are going to start seeing more pandemics and epidemics as climate change and the breakdown of all sorts of other ecological systems gets worse? Yeah, I mean, I think theoretically, there will be expanded areas for outbreaks, you know, as mosquitoes move into regions where they weren't, or as people encroach upon, uh, you know, places that were, uh, that didn't have human existence prior. But I'm actually... The climate effects, let's take all infectious diseases out of the equation, are so, are going to be so devastating that them alone is enough for us to have to, you know, Mm. make the changes necessary. So I actually don't even think it's necessary to include the potential for outbreaks into that because uh, the, what's coming is going to be so devastating just environmentally. You know, interestingly, when I, when I bring this up with, you know, people I worked with in Sierra Leone, they said something interesting about the 2014 outbreak uh, when I bring up this topic like, well, they're, they're saying that Ebola is becoming more prominent because, you know, you're encroaching on the jungle more and more. And they'd say things like, no, you know, we actually were throughout the jungle during our civil wars in the 1990s and early 2000s, and there was no Ebola. And now we're back to where we were with farms. So why would it happen now? So I actually think the link is, you know, it's there, but it's not, it's not always causal. And so, you know, just focusing on the environmental devastation is going to be enough to support uh, why we need to make changes there. So, you know, we've talked a lot today about the kind of mismanagement of global public health infrastructure and, and inequalities produced by it. But some people would maybe agree with that, but wouldn't have the kind of solutions in mind that we've been discussing, and instead might say, well, you know, COVID is a conspiracy that's started by 
Bill Gates or whatever, some sort of mad theory. And we're seeing an increase in these kinds of conspiracy theories throughout the pandemic. So how can we kind of critique this system without encouraging people to view it as a kind of, you know, project of the global elite to, you know, I don't know, infect us all in weird ways in a kind of dystopian, almost sci-fi sense? Yeah, so this may be a minority opinion, but the way I, I think of things very structurally. So when I when I talk to people in the in the Congo about you know their believing that Ebola was a U.S. bioweapon, or you know not believing it was real or not taking vaccines, I, I essentially saw a habitus or a structural disposition mm. towards eluding depredation, you know, like a critique of globalization, a critique of the past few hundred years, a historical consciousness of you know what had happened and and that's why uh what on the surface looked like conspiracy theories it was really this this habitus of just wanting to not be preyed upon and so you know the the conspiracy theories in the global north i think for me lend themselves to a uh also structural analysis and i would say that they're the exact opposite that much of those conspiracy theories come from habitus of entitlement mm. groups that have seen the elite status they've achieved through unfair legacies uh, and unjust legacies of the inc- colonial endeavor, they're starting to see downward mobility. The upward mobility they've gained from all this extraction from the other has, is slowly, it's not as profitable as it was, and people are seeing downward mobility. And then they're lashing out at who they see as the current elites, like, you know, the Gates would be the first one to go after, or coastal elites in the US like me who work at places like Harvard. And that makes sense too, because when you see your state in the world changing, you're going to go after who you think is is responsible for it. And from all the hate mail I've been getting about the reparation stuff, and it, it strikes me that dialogue may very well not be the answer because of there's nowhere to meet conversationally. And that's why I've also been thinking more and more about reparations as a form of justice that is imposed. It's almost equality that is imposed. Because mm-hmm. I only, I really only think that types conspiracy theories like, like that would stop when we have a more egalitarian society. Yeah. I don't think any amount of arguing or talking to people or showing them pamphlets is going to do it. There has to be huge reductions in inequity so people don't see, and and that means it's going to be a real rough patch to that time if we ever even get there. But I think that can only not exist when, when you have an egalitarian society. Thank you so much, uh, Eugene, for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. It was great to have you on the show. Thank you. 